Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! All right, everybody out there in crowdfunding land, how is everybody doing? Hopefully you guys are doing well. Hopefully that money is coming in for you. Hopefully your campaigns are rocketing into overfunding and rocketing to success and and all the dreams are, are, are coming together. You're seeing the next five years of your campaign or your project. You see, you see, you just see everything, right? Hopefully that's what's happening for you. That's not really happening today for me. It's just a Thursday for me, but, uh, but I'm excited. So who is on today's episode? That's a great question from the other, uh, personality here from Mr. Jeff Wenzel, my, uh, my side, my side guest here, my side host. Uh, so coming up on today's episode, we're going to be talking to Sam Shames, uh, and he is from the campaign Amber Wave. And it's not from Boogie Nights, Amber Waves. I kept thinking that the whole time. If you're a Boogie Nights fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. But his company is Amber Wave, E-M-B-R-W-A-V-E.com. We're going to be talking about heating and cooling your body with a wearable. Yeah, right, with a wearable. Not a fan, not a, uh, not a, not a blanket, but an actual, like, um, you know, thermostat for your body. Very cool thing. I, I definitely recommend right now, if you're already intrigued because of my awesome selling that I've done here, um, go over and check it out. Go over to Kickstarter. Like I said, put in Emberwave, E-M-B-R-W-A-V-E, and check this out. Very intriguing, especially if you're somebody who is struggling with, uh, you know, you're at the office and somebody wants it at 68 degrees and you want it at 72 degrees and you're cold, you're hot, you're cold, you're hot. Go check this thing out because we're going to get into it. So if you don't, you know, you don't believe me yet, by the time we get into the interview portion with Sam, I think you'll understand. But um, very, very cool product. And this is one of those ones that, um, you know, they're at half a million dollars right now with, with two weeks to go on a uh, $100,000 goal. So pretty cool product, right? Pretty, 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 pretty cool. So I say that with, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that, that has kind of happened for me. Are any of you guys out there Curb Your Enthusiasm fans? I'll wait for your responses. Okay, nobody responded. We had a little bit of silent noise, which I know you're not supposed to do for podcasts and radio, but whatever. So something's kind of happened to me. So I used to, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the show Seinfeld back in the day, I think, like many, many people. And I've enjoyed the many of the seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm up until this last one, and, or the newest one. There's a couple episodes out. Maybe it'll change, but... What's happened to me is I, it's the, the, the context of which that show is a part of. And I'll, here's, here's what I'm saying about this. Here's, here's my reasoning. I watched the first couple episodes, and, you know, I guess I just was a lot more uncomfortable with Larry David and his personality being a dick. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've never watched the show, this will mean nothing to you. But if you have watched the show... You'll know what I'm talking about. You know, he comes. He, he's always, you know, calling people out for their stuff right in front of him. It's a very awkward show. It's, you know, it's it's a lot of rudeness. And I'll tell you, the first couple episodes have rubbed me really wrong. And I think what's changed is the world. You know, in a time that we need to have like triple the empathy that that we're that we're our default setting is, and in a time that we need to be. You know, I think sensitive and nice to people who are, you know, in fear. Um, there are so many unbelievable things going on that to watch a show where in the first episode, Larry David, you know, 
you know, is being a basically a, the D word, a dick to, a, you know, either transgender or a lesbian, what I, I, you know, some, something along those lines, you know, doesn't hold the door, kind of cause a, it was, it just rubbed me really wrong, you know, and I think the reason it was is I don't understand why that wasn't a human being. Why wouldn't you just hold the door for a human being who was walking through a door? And if you don't know what I'm, I'm talking about, go watch episode one and tell me if this is how you guys feel. And I just kept and, and episode two, same thing. There was plot lines and stories in there. I'm like, you know, can how about we just be nice in that scenario? Maybe we don't have to be a condescending dick to everybody. You know, maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe we can just treat people, everybody, with respect. Open the door for them, ask them how their day is, say please and thank yous. Basically, just have manners. Is that really that hard? And is that so hard that now we have, to, we have that there should be a show based on how to, you know, being rude and being condescending? I, I mean, I just, I don't know if I'm alone on this. I, I you know, I, I, I just, ah, I just have had enough of it. It's like, we've got to come together and be nice. And I think shows like this without being, and I don't want to be a prune. I don't want to be an old man. Saying, ah, that show is not, I really enjoyed Larry David for a lot of my life. What's changed? Ah, the world around it, you know? So that's kind of my, my two cents here from the old one wins away over here. But, uh, what else has been going on? Well, what else? Not too much else, man. We're kind of rolling in. We've been having quite a bit. Of, I'm going to actually have a little bit of a kick conversa- Kickstarter conversation here. We've been having some debates around here about whether or not we want some of our campaigns to be f- going around the holidays, you know. And I have, been a, I have been a subscriber to you don't, right? Like, I really don't want to compete with Christmas. Um, if your project's coming, you know, you're going to deliver your product, uh, you know, uh, next Christmas. I don't think that that's a great selling point. Um, I also typically don't really want to be launching somewhere around that early January time. I think that that's a hard time to launch. I think getting people's attention and, and you know having them paying off their credit cards from the Christmas or whatever it is, I think that's a challenging time. But I'm 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 open for debate. I I you know very few people actually debate me on this, but you see you still see campaigns launched you know around Christmas. Maybe the Black Friday you can come up with some pretty unique marketing stuff. Maybe, but again, you're still competing with the whole world marketing for that attention so maybe you get drowned out maybe you don't maybe it's just common you know everybody knows it i don't know if you do a flash sale or something around i'm not sure but i'm I'm open for those debates i'd love to hear if anybody else has any opinions about that because for us we typically you know on a launch side of the equations we kind of shut down a little bit coming up in in december here you know end of november early december or end of november december even into january that sort of six week period we just we don't launch much, but I know there's campaigns that launch. I, uh, you know, maybe some of you out there have had success with it. I'm, I'm interested. I'm curious. So shoot me an email, Jeff at Woodshed.agency. Um, and I'd love to hear it. Or you can text me, 248-264-3464. And yes, that is my real cell phone number. Don't call me in the middle of the night. Just shoot me a text um, if you've had success in the middle, um, you know, in the holiday months. So, all right. I think that's all I got for today. Um, I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, why don't you go ahead and check out, oh, do me a couple of things. Make sure if you like the podcast, leave a review over on iTunes. That's helpful, big-time helpful. Uh, tell a friend. And go check out the campaign. Go check out Amber Wave, right? So let's let's get in. Let's go ahead and let me kick in my conversation with Sam. And let's talk about, you know, thermostating your body. Is that a word? Thermostating your body? I don't know. Let's talk about, let's talk about 
temperature control for your body. All right, guys. All right, Sam, I'm going to give you my sock joke here. I just hit the, re- the red lights on, so I know that's when the pressure kicks in for most people. Are you feeling nervous? Well, maybe most people would be, but let me tell you, I just started some cooling. So, you know, when the pressure's oh. on, I know what to do. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great first plug right out of the gate. Cool. Well, let's start off with a simple sound check here, just to make sure everything's good on my end here. So um, what did you have for breakfast this morning? This morning, I had some tea for breakfast. And that's about it. I'm not to be. I don't tend to eat a lot in the morning. Um, okay, all but right. Had some good, uh, some good oolong tea. Nice, nice. Are you a a, 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 a big tea, a big tea drinker? I am. Yeah, I, I don't drink coffee, so I really like tea. Uh, loose leaf tea, especially. Um, I've had the the opportunity to go to Asia for work now a few times, and uh, you know, learning about the tea culture there and seeing the the tea ceremonies has kind of made me even more into it. But it's, it's uh, it's a whole world, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Oh yeah, I mean, like you, you could dive real deep into it, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a novice. Anyone who's really good at tea, they would see, you know, how long I steep it for, and like that I'm not doing the water temperature right. But I'm like, look, it's, <laughs> I like it. It's a good way to start the morning. It kind of slows you down a little bit and uh, serves me well. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, I think we're sounding good here. So let's uh, let's jump right into it. So uh, why don't you tell my listeners, if you can, what you are currently funding on Kickstarter for? Great. So our project is the Ember Wave, which is a heating and cooling wristband. And it's a wearable that heats and cools your body directly to help you be more comfortable when you're too hot or too cold. And what we've found is, you know, in our day-to-day lives, we rarely have control over the temperature, and the Ember Wave really provides that thermal relief that people are looking for. So, so when you just describe like a wearable, is this like I'm wearing a, a big gigantic cloak or something, or, or how, how do you describe? Like, yeah. what, what am I doing? No, so I it's, it's a wristband. It looks and is worn like a watch. Um, most people actually want to wear it on the inside of their wrist, near their kind of veins and uh, where a high blood flow area. We were actually inspired in part by the you know the kind of urban myth or you know old wives' tale of putting an ice cube on your wrist to cool down. And what we've found is that just that amount of localized sensation can help people feel comfortable when they're too hot, even without changing their core temperature. And there's kind of a, a fascinating science behind that, comfort science, which we've had the chance to, to really dive into in the last four years that we can cover if your listeners want. Or, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, well, but yeah. Well, where does this sort of start from? I mean, outside of it being an old wives' tale, like, like where, does yeah. the, where does this idea come from? Well, it actually starts maybe like many things in the 60s. And <laughs> what <laughs> happened is that was actually when the comfort science began and when basically the guidelines for heating and cooling buildings and homes were developed. And that was where we got the idea of a room temperature in that, you know, the way to keep someone comfortable is to keep the room temperature within a very narrow one to two degree window, you know, 72 sure. to 70. And right. what that was based on is a, is a pretty simple idea is that, you know, the human body generates heat. We keep our, you know, we're at 98.6 and we're radiating that heat into the environment and you basically need to balance that. You need to say, okay, we have some clothes on and you need to make sure that the environment can't be too cold, that we're radiating too much heat. And that was where you got the idea that all you needed was to keep a temperature very comfortable, you know, keep the room at a 
very small, narrow temperature window, and mm -hmm. that people are going to be comfortable. And as most people know, that just is not working very well. You know, 40% of office workers report being so uncomfortable it ends up disrupting their productivity. Um, people have different temperature preferences. And really over the last 15 years, there's been a lot of work basically showing that comfort's actually more complicated than just a heat balance equation. And right. it turns out that you know, we all kind of know this intuitively. You think about, like, outside, you can be comfortable in 50-degree weather or 80-degree weather. And you can also find that, you know, actually, sometimes you can be in a warm day where it's 80 degrees and have a cool breeze, and that actually makes you feel, in some extent, better than comfortable. And sure. in order to make that statement, I have to say, like, what does comfort actually mean? And what the science has basically come to say is that Comfort refers to the condition of being kind of satisfied in the mind. So it's, one, a psychological state. It's something you report. And it basically refers to not, com not being in a state of complaining. Like, it's like, okay, this is fine. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. And what it turns out that's missing is it's, it's really boring. Comfort is boring. It's like the kind of the sensory equivalent of staring at a white wall or, you know, listening to right. one note or one chord on repeat. And it turns out humans really like temperature change, you know? You're on a hot day, a cool breeze feels amazing. Um, you know, you like, we like dipping our toes in the ocean. And it turns out those temperature changes have a really strong impact on how comfortable we feel. And a lot of the comfort research in the last, say, 10 or 15 years has basically showed that, one, when you're uncomfortable, what that really means is you're basically looking at a complaint-driven model. So you're looking at how do, I, how do different parts of my body feel? How does my head feel? How does my, my arms feel? How does my, my feet feel? And if any one of those are uncomfortable or too hot or too cold, you just say, I'm uncomfortable overall. <laughs> Meanwhile, if one part of your body kind of has a different sensation, so if my face is flush and, and feeling hot, and then I actually start to dip my toes in cold water, the cool from the toes, having my toes or my feet report being cold, basically counterbalances my warm head and you report being more comfortable. And it turns out, you know, again, that's very intuitive. We all know that. But some researchers at UC Berkeley have basically developed a quantitative and very rigorous model to actually describe this in a, in a scientifically and mathematically rigorous way. And, you know, that's kind of the underlying research that, that our product is based off of. And, and we're actually really proud to say that we're working with those uh, folks at UC Berkeley. It's at their Center for the Built Environment to do some third-party research on our device to try to get some data which supports what our beta testers have already told us, that, you know, this makes them more comfortable by heating and cooling one part of their body. Wow, that's cool. So when you're wearing this, like a watch on the, on like the inside of your wrist or whatever, what is actually like happening? I mean, what, what's happening in the, in, the, in the wearable? Yeah, so when I wake it up, I push either side of the light pipe and I see a red and a blue. And then I basically would press and hold the blue to start cooling. I'm actually doing this now as we speak. And what I feel is I feel a cold sensation on my wrist. Um, it's basically ramping down, meaning the sensation's getting stronger. And then when it reaches my sweet spot, the part where I'm like, okay, this feels really good. It's not, you know, it's not barely noticeable. It's not too strong that it's too cold. 
I just let go of the button, and then the device is actually going to pulse around that intensity. So the sensation is going to start fading in and out or coming in waves, as we say. Um, and it turns out that's really important because, like I mentioned, our bodies are really sensitive to temperature change. And creating these thermal waves basically maximizes the sensation that we experience and also keeps it constant over time. So anytime there's a constant temperature, you adapt to it. Think about your shower. You, you know, turn the nozzle to whatever warm temperature you like it, and then you know, a minute later you're turning it up because it doesn't feel as strong. So that's kind of the subjective experience. The technology that makes that possible is a basically a thermoelectric cooler, or a Peltier cooler, which is a solid state air conditioner. It's basically a little ceramic tile that when connected to a battery um, and when you run electricity through it, changes temperature. And we figured out that that device, we've kind of designed a custom one that's very optimized for the sensations and temperatures that our body and specifically the thermoreceptors on our skin are most sensitive to. And so it's kind of that component combined with our proprietary and, and patented control systems that make the Ember Wave pack such a powerful punch in a, in a small form factor. Can you do stuff like going, you know, far extreme? So I know you, you mentioned the shower thing of, of like running cold water at the end of it just to kind of wake your body up. Can you go that far with the, with the like the extreme? So we've designed it to be able to access the full range of thermal sensation. So you can get something that people report as this is very cold and this is very warm. So so. Okay, so yes so I mean, is the short yeah, answer yeah, to yeah, your yeah, question. Yeah, no, gotcha, gotcha, <laughs> Sorry. Gotcha. No, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> So, you know, for yourself particularly, where do you kind of jump in on this project and, and start kind of taking the research and starting to put this together into, like, something that is on Kickstarter right now? Yeah, so I'm one of the founders. Um, I met my other two founders, Matt and David, when we were engineering students at MIT in the material science and engineering department. And we got together and started working on this in a contest called MADMEC, which is basically around sustainability. And so we were actually inspired to heat and cool people directly as a way to help buildings save energy. And it was only after building our first prototypes that we discovered that actually it just feels really good. When you're too hot, something cold feels good, and that's valuable in and of itself. Um, and that was in the summer of 2013. We ended up winning that contest in fall 2013, and it basically spent the last four years um, taking what was you know, a school science project, really crude benchtop technology, and field testing it, and shrinking it, and designing it into a form factor that you know, is actually uh, consumer product ready, and then getting it ready to manufacture. And we made a decision early on that you know, even though we got a lot of people who said, when can I buy this, when can I buy this, when can I buy this, we said, we don't want to sell it to you until we know we can deliver. So right. we've waited this long to go on Kickstarter because we needed to have a, a finished design. And then not only that, we needed to have a finished design that we wanted to have manufactured at scale. So you know, one of the things we're really proud of is that we've completed our engineering sample builds already with our contract manufacturer, meaning we've built units on an assembly line with production parts and production um, you know, kind of manufacturing and assembly techniques. And so we basically got to this moment of being on Kickstarter by reaching that manufacturing milestone. It's like, okay, we've now designed this and we've shown we can build this in a way that is scalable to mass production. So, you know, it was really hitting that milestone this summer. I was actually in, in China for that, that build, which is really exciting that, that let us kind of say, okay, now is the time. That's cool. That's very cool. It seems like you had to walk a fine line, similar to like maybe the Apple Watch, of tech and still 
you know, a wearable that looks good and stuff. How did you guys manage to kind of make sure that you're building obviously something that works and does what it's supposed to, but also looks, you know, looks good on the, on the wrist? Well, thank you. I'm glad you think so. We, uh, we certainly do. Um, you know, there were a number of things. So first, have to shout out to our design team um, at Loft LLC in Providence. Um, they were the ones who did the industrial and mechanical design. And, you know, they really did an amazing job creating something that, you know, looks pretty and has a nice aesthetic and also fits all the components and, and meets the functional requirements. Um, in terms of how we knew what those functional requirements and what it had to look like, that came from field trials. And that came from, you know, testing earlier versions that didn't look so well uh, or didn't look so good, rather, um, with people. But what we found very early on in the process is if it didn't look good, people wouldn't wear it. And right, we could right. have the best comfort thing in the world. And we saw this in our field trials early on is, like, we'd ask people, oh, how'd it go? And they'd say, well... It wasn't that useful because, you know, I kept it in my bag and then when I finally, you know, was feeling uncomfortable by the time I got it out and turned it on. And so it took us basically from fall 2013 to June 2015 to make something that, you know, was small enough in, in kind of components and had a nice enough design that people would actually wear. And then we were able to do about 200 field trials during the second half of 2015 and finally learn what um, functional and aesthetic criteria we needed for the final design. So it was a combination of just necessity because people wouldn't use it, and then you know figuring out what good enough and or you know what something looked like that was attractive and people wanted to wear from right. from field trials, and then finally bringing those uh, those constraints to a really talented design team. That's cool. So I mean, so you've got a, around four years into this project. What's been the biggest sort of roadblock or you know, or something that you guys just couldn't do that you wanted to do? Was there anything that just, you know, changed your course at all? Yeah, so I think the first thing that comes to mind is just, you know, the pace. So we're a team of material science and engineering students, so, mm -hmm. you know, we're very good at figuring out what components need to be into this device, but we're not the mechanical engineers or the industrial designers, or the electrical engineers, so... We had to work with contractors to do a lot of the, you know, really nitty-gritty design. We were able to provide the high-level concept, but that really set the pace, and it definitely meant we, you know, went slower than we may have liked at times, and, you know, we had to really invest in finding those right partners. So I think that, in some sense, has been the biggest roadblock, and then, you know, because things are going slower, it's easy to feel demoralized or like you haven't made a lot of progress or, you know, like you're not in control of your own destiny as much because you are relying right. on these external people. But um, I think that's kind of what comes to mind. It's just because we needed to, to work with contractors and, you know, couldn't do a lot of the real detailed work ourselves, we were really, you know, kind of constrained early on. And, you know, at this point, we've now found really amazing contractors we've worked with on multiple projects, and we have a lot more engineering in-house. And, you know, that's been really exciting as things have gone significantly faster in the past six months mm -hmm. or so. But um, that was definitely initially the hardest part, I think. That's cool. Well, how about my, my follow-up to that would be, where's the moment that it all just came together that you really knew you had something that you should keep going down this rabbit hole? Because I'm sure... You know, it's it's a long time that you've been working on it. So, was there a moment where you just like, yeah, I gotta keep, I gotta stay with this, I gotta stay with this? Yeah, I would say it was honestly at right at the beginning. So it was when we won the student contest, Mad Mech, in October 2013, because we didn't set out to start a company at all. We set out to do a fun summer project together, 
And it was winning that contest and having the idea essentially go totally viral from one MIT news story to next thing you know, Wired and was calling and Popular Science wants to review this. And what happened from that media attention is, um, we, sorry about that notification. <laughs> So what happened from that media attention was we started getting hundreds of emails from people all around the world saying, hey, temperature is a huge problem in my life. When can I buy this thing? And that really convinced us that this isn't just a student project. You know, We knew this field felt good to use, and our friends liked it too. But hey, this is something that many people could use, and that this is a true market need. So from there, it was just about you know, wanting to do right by these people who, you know, many of our backers from the Kickstarter campaign have sent us messages and said, hey, I've been following you guys for four years. Like, you know, it's so amazing to see this come to fruition. Like, I can't even tell you the, you know, the temperature stories that we've heard. That's interesting. Is it, have you found any sort of um, maybe new applications that you guys weren't thinking of? I don't know, medical or anything weird that's starting to pop out where you're like, we didn't really expect to be big in the sports world or what, like something weird that, that might be attached to it? So, we're definitely not a medical device. Um, we've definitely gotten people with medical conditions interested in using it, um, and we're very curious. Like you know, for them, we're very happy to yeah. have them yeah. try units. Um, I have to be careful what I say here in terms of one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The I, FDA, I don't, I don't, yeah, and two. Yeah, it's not that. It's just like those kind of like weird things. Like wow, we never really thought that like this type of person would want it. Or I don't know. You know, just anything weird that's like popped out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think maybe one way to do that, and this is sort of maybe uh, people always ask about athletics. Um, it turns out that's not a particularly good use case for us because when you're exercising, your body generates a lot more heat and your core temperature does kind of start to rise. But one really cool opportunity we had there was we had a chance to test some devices in the Olympic Training Center with uh, like Olympic and world-class level track and field people. And so that was just a pretty cool opportunity in terms of, you know, having really elite runners try this device. And, you know, we have some photos of them in like a, um, you know, kind of like a hyperbaric chamber with like really cool sensors on a special treadmill trying these devices. Um, so that's kind of one example. Um, there definitely are other ones, but uh, for mainly IP reasons, I'm not going to go into any detail. <laughs> so uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. It's a suburb outside of Boston, city of 80,000 people, um, kind of like a classic suburban childhood, like very good schools, playing outside in the yard. I really love sports growing up. That's cool. And, and all your co-founders, did you meet them all at school? I did, yeah. So yeah. they were in the same department as me. They were actually grad students. Um, and so I did some undergraduate research, and that was how I got to know them. And I just thought they were really impressive people, um, <laughs> researchers obviously too, but I was like, these guys are really cool. And so I was trying to scheme on a way to convince some really smart graduate students to work with me. And I said, hey, Mad Mech, that could be work. And to my amazement, they said yes. And, <laughs> and here we are four years later still getting to work together every day. That's cool. And how about your parents? What do they do? Uh, my parents are both lawyers. They're, okay. Yeah, my dad specializes in entertainment law, and my mom, she works kind of part-time on employment law and then also as a, as a children's librarian. Oh, nice. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, so where, do they have, like, their own practices? I mean, so where, it seems like you have a little bit of that entrepreneur spirit in there for you to be, you know, driving down this, uh, this uh, you know, this project here. So, I mean, did they instill that in you, or, or where do you think that comes from? You know... I definitely felt like I knew from a young age that I didn't want to go work for a big company and wanted to start my own company. Um, 
it turns out, looking back and getting a little more of a sense of history, entrepreneurship does run in my family. So my grandmother on my dad's side, she started and ran a market research company for about 60 years. She actually just retired at age 87 uh, a couple months ago. So she's definitely a huge inspiration from a, from a business perspective. Um, and then, you know, my great-grandparents, they were immigrants, Jewish immigrants from, from Europe. And, you know, they kind of came and did, started a bunch of different businesses. Um, that was kind of like how they established themselves in America. So my great-grandfather, my mom's side, was a florist um, and had a flower shop. My great-grandfather on my dad's side, they worked in the, the clothing industry. You know, my, uh, my grandfather, he was a traveling salesman. So definitely yeah. it does run into your, in your family a little bit. You know, my parents yeah. obviously did not go that route in terms of becoming lawyers. But uh, it's definitely something that I thought was, uh, was really appealing from a young age. Yeah, it sounds like he had some, uh, some pre-wiring there. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. That's, that's cool. That's cool. Well, let's flip a little bit over to the actual Kickstarter campaign, which is why we're talking. So, like right now, we're talking, and you've got let me pull up my notes here. You got 17 days to go. Still, still a couple of weeks here, and you're at just under half a million dollars. So, uh, you've done quite well on this uh, campaign. So, Thank <laughs> no you. doubt about that. Um, so, what was kind of the overall strategy? Out. I mean, you had the four years to kind of build this, and it sounds like you've done. You did a good job building those insiders. But ultimately, though. When you launched the campaign, what was kind of like the overall strategy and how you wanted to make sure you had a huge first day and a first week to, to get to where you are right now? Yep. So first off, I should give most of the credit to our, our head of marketing, Jake. Um, we actually hired him in August with the said, we kind of said, hey, here's this thing we've poured our heart and soul into for about four years. You got two months to launch. And to his credit, he just stepped up and delivered in, in the most amazing way. Um, but, you know, we definitely did work with him on the strategy. And the first thing we did was focus on our email list. So, like I mentioned, over the course of the four years, we were able to build a, a quite substantial email list of about 18,000 people. Um, and so in the months leading up to that campaign, we spent a lot of uh, kind of time activating that list and, you know, sharing early information about the product then and trying to segment them into who were, you know, who of that list was likely to convert and figure out how to activate them on the first day. And that was kind of a big effort. Um, you know, obviously with Kickstarter, the video is huge. So we put a Mm -hmm. substantial amount of, uh, of budget into that video and we're worked with a, a really talented production firm, Silvermine Productions, um, down in, uh, in New York City. Um, got the really great video done. And then, you know, on launch day, we kind of had an extra early bird price. We had an early bird price. And we, you know, between our friends and family and people who signed up for the email list, we had about 1,000 people who said, all right, l- I didn't notify me at 7 a.m. when the extra <laughs> early bird price goes live. So yeah. we had enough people right away who wanted to buy that, you know, that, uh, you know, we knew we were going to have momentum right out of the gate um, and, you know, buy before 10 o'clock the first day. So, but within, uh, within three hours, we had, we had met our goal, which is really amazing. Um, and I think that, you know, mainly came from the email list. But the other big thing we did was was PR. So we worked with a, a PR um, freelancer who kind of helped land some really great stories. You know, the one of the biggest being the the digital trends review, which came out on launch day, and that was you know a really exciting, positive product review from uh, you know a great publication and uh, and a well respected tech journalist. So those things together, I think, created a lot of initial momentum. That's cool. Now. Uh- you know, we kind of go back and forth a little bit here uh, at the agency on, on PR. 
um, did you find that you had to have like a working prototype for it for you to really get that sort of good press article as opposed to maybe it just being an idea, you know, like, hey, we're going to have a great working one in a year and a half from now. Um, do you think that that had a, had a huge impact on that? I do. I mean, we basically, in between when we got our kind of first big press in October 2013 and this launch, we're totally heads down, no focus on PR because we just had to build something, you know, yeah. like. There's only, we already had our kind of big concept story written. And so I don't think anyone would have covered us if we'd had just a prototype. And yep. especially part of our story and part of the reason we think we've done well on Kickstarter is because we're, we're far, far along. And so if you're going to make those claims, you need to be able to back them up in terms of, you know, uh, giving units out to people and saying, you know, we're proud of what we made. It's not completely done in terms of all the user interface stuff, but you can fully use this prototype and, you know, we're excited for you to put it to the test. You know, we believe, we really believe in what we made. That's cool. So when you're running a campaign like this and you've got these, you know, big numbers, right? You know, lots of backers, lots of comments. How, how do you stay sort of, um, you know, without being in the weeds, but staying focused on making sure that you're responding to everybody, making sure that you're handling all the communications and all, all the notifications that are pinging right now and, Guys like me bothering you. How do you kind of stay focused on it? <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely a team effort. Um, you know, the first day was really like all hands on deck. Like, you know, we are an eight-person team, and we kind of all paused what we were doing. And each person, you know, Jake was sort of the general and told each person what to do. So I was on Kickstarter comments. Other people were on Facebook messages. Other people were on email support. And it was overwhelming, but we were all supporting each other. And... You know, we just did our best. We tried to, in advance, have written up a lot of frequently asked questions, so we had answers we could use. But you know, people are people are creative in what they ask, which is a great thing. And that was definitely the the first day was really intense. And then you know, the rest of that first week was it was pretty intense as well. And then you know, why just kind of sacrificed my first weekend and was just sort of on call, checking every hour or so. Um, it's kind of settled down a little bit, but now we just all have kind of like a time in our calendars where we all take 30 minutes, you know, a day at different points and, and check. And um, it's definitely amazing and a blessing to have customers who care and who are asking questions and inquisitive. And, you know, we're really excited to answer them. But at the same time, you know, it is obviously there's other work to be done, and so it is something you do have to think about and balance. And um, you know, we're just taking the lead from from Jake, our head of marketing, who's done a really great job at you know helping us figure out what is uh, what is the right level of service to offer. And you know, we we know we have an expensive product, and you know, it's also a new product, so we expect people to have questions, and we expect uh, people to to wonder. And uh, you know, that's something that we want to we want to make sure that we're addressing as many concerns as we can. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's very very cool. So, um, you know, you mentioned just a second ago on on um, I'm sorry, just had a note here pop up in front of me. Those notifications. That's what happens. The notification that your eyes go somewhere and you're like, whoa, whoa, what am I talking about right now? <laughs> um, yep. So I I, I was looking the other the other day too on is there anything kind of behind the scenes on your dashboard that's maybe also you know oh wow we are huge we got a lot of sales in New Zealand or was has there been anything weird that's like I wasn't expecting that anything behind the scenes. Um, we, it is cool, the dashboard, and you get to see, you know, where the different traffic comes from. Uh, one of the things that has been cool, which, you know, I just didn't know about, is the whole cross-promotion community. So, you know, pretty much right away, we got interest from 
a lot of different other campaigns saying, hey, do you want to do these cross-promotional collaborations where when we do updates, we'll post about you and you'll post about us. And for all the research we've done on Kickstarter campaigns, that's just for some reason we didn't see. But yeah. that's been really exciting to, uh, you know, to one, get a lot of interest and two, um, get to partner with some really cool campaigns. And you know, that's converted quite well. Um, and that's, I think, what comes to mind as far as uh, you know, how the dashboard is, has helped yeah. us and, and what's been cool there. And you, know, you can, again, convert from like, see exactly what converts there. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So with 17 days to go, you know, what's kind of a strategy to just make sure that you're keeping some momentum going? I mean, it's probably a little bit lighter than obviously the, the first week and you'll have a big last week. But, you know, what do you do to kind of just keep the momentum going right now? Yep. So last week at the end, we offered started working a referral program. So, you know, you can get an affiliate link and if someone who you refer backs our campaign, you'll get um, 10%, I believe, is the number. So that's one thing, just trying to encourage that word of mouth. Uh, we are continuing to push the PR. Um, we have some more stories in the works which we're really excited about, um, working with influencers. Um, we're also trying to plan some events. So for example, we're gonna be at MIT Energy Night this Friday, which is an event in Cambridge. It gets about 1,000 people. So you know, one of the things we've really seen is uh, you know, feeling is believing and our page, we are really proud of how it explains the product, the product but it's one thing to, to read about it, it's another thing to try it. And so we are tr- doing some experiments with events. We will maybe have some more ones in the works, which we'll be announcing soon. And those, I think, the two things. And then also, you know, preparing for that kind of final week push as we know uh, campaign traffic picks, pick, picks back up. Yeah. Have you been doing any sort of uh, um, pay-per-click tra- um, strategies at all? We have, yeah. We've been doing a little bit of pay-per-click. Um, you know, what we found is you got to create that urgency when someone lands on the page, um, which is challenging because you can't have a new deal every day and you don't want to do anything that would alienate your other backers. But uh, it's good experience, and it'll tell us a lot for, say, after the campaign as well. Um, but we are doing a little bit of that, but focused more, I think, on the, on the PR and on the events. Gotcha. So what happens, you know, so you got, you know, with the 17 days to go and it takes all the money's got to come in, which takes a couple of weeks and stuff, but what starts to happen from that point on when, uh, when the, the funds have dropped and you've got to start delivering? So then we, we ramp production. Um, so, you know, like I said, we have our production line set up. Um, we've ordered a lot of the components. We were waiting on some of the more expensive ones until we kind of have the final number of the campaign. So um, pretty much when the campaign ends, we'll go issue those POs for those components. And then uh, we'll have the contract manufacturer start, you know, as things come in, start doing their incoming quality inspection, setting up the line, and then, and then cranking. You know, we, uh, we told people and that, you know, the first extra early bird units ship in February, and we absolutely intend to meet that promise. And, you know, that's both a lot of time and not a lot of time in the world of manufacturing. So that's, uh, you know, it's starting that as quickly as possible. And then... Um, working to make sure we deliver all the units on time. The other big thing is the, the product certifications, is uh, you know, getting those underway, which kind of has already started, but um, that should kind of be continuing and towards winding down as the campaign ends, so we'll be thinking about the next steps there. What, um, what sort of certifications do you have to have uh, like, for, for this? It's just standard, so FCC, because um, it's an electronic device, uh, and, you know, uh, CE for European markets. Um, 
kind of nothing out of the ordinary, just your standard electronic certifications. Gotcha. How, how do, you, do you just go to that? Is a lawyer set up that? Where do you even go for something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I mean, I knew nothing about it. And I, I don't know very much it. still a novice, but basically you work with a third party firm. So there's a number of, of firms out there and kind of two big ones that uh, do this for you. So you hire them, they you send them units, they run the tests, they get all the necessary paperwork, and then you get to say you're certified. That's cool. Interesting. So this may be a, a touchy question, and it's only because I've seen articles and trends on it for products like in, in, in the vein you're in right now. How do you prevent you know, the manufa- China manufacturing to put this out before you guys can deliver it? You know, I, I mean, I've read some articles on this in the past, and it seems like that's kind of a new thing creeping up in the Kickstarter world. So how do you prevent something like this from happening to your company? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say, first and foremost, you need to trust your manufacturer, which we do. Uh, We found someone who had worked with other companies in the MIT community for three decades and who had a stellar reputation. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing. Um, You know, and then it comes down to just investing in the necessary security on the component level, on the firmware level, um, making sure you have good relationship with your supply chain. And at the end of the day, it's something that if you're successful, you know it's going to happen. Right. And right. then it just comes down to, you know, quality. You know, cheap knockoffs exist and some people want to buy them, but we really believe strongly that Thanks to the scientific understanding we have, we can make a better product, and we're very happy to, to go head-to-head with those. Um, and, you know, if some cheap knockoff wants to capture the low end of the market, that's, you know, yeah. that's something you have to live with. You know, it's, yeah, there's not a lot much, of margin there. Yeah, I just wonder how much you guys think about that sort of stuff or if it's a concern. Or yeah, like you know, I mean, a little bit, but it's a trap, really, to think about. Yeah. What we really try to spend our time thinking about is our customers and how can we serve them. Um, you know, thinking about knockoffs or competitors or other things you can't control ends up just being really de-energizing, which, uh, right. you know, there's no time for that. <laughs> so, so what do you see, um, you know, in the next five years for Amberwave? So we, first and foremost, want to make sure we deliver the Amberwave to, to our customers and, and, you know, help provide them thermal relief. But we really see this as just the beginning. So our technology um, has potential applications in entertainment, virtual reality, nonverbal communication. Um, we can't speak too publicly about what's next, but there's a lot of possibilities ahead. And you know, we talk about we want to be the uh, you know the the gore tech of active heating and cooling. And we really believe that we've developed a, a new way to interact with temperature, and that thermal relief is is just the beginning. That's cool. Very cool. Well, where can people find out more info outside of the Kickstarter? Where can people dive into your world? So our website is emberlabs.com. So that's E-M-B-R-L-A-B-S.com. Emberwave.com would take you to our Kickstarter, but Emberlabs would be our, uh, our website. That's probably the best place to get information right now. Um, you can also follow us on, on Facebook at Emberwave. Um, or um, Twitter, Instagram, but uh, then I would say the email list as well. You know, in terms of sharing more announcements, that's our go-to place. Um, but first and foremost, if you're just curious more about, you know, who makes the Ember Wave, I would check out our website, emdrlabs.com. 
Cool. Awesome. Well, Sam, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to me about this awesome product, man. I mean, it just looks like a great campaign, great product. And uh, you guys are kicking butt, man. And uh, you've got a lot more time, a lot more time to go too. So uh, I think you you got some uh, a bright future ahead. So it's doing well, man. Oh, thank you. All right. Yeah, we're, so much, uh, you know, we're not even halfway done. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not, man. It's awesome. So uh, congrats and, and good luck in the future, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again. All right. So how about that conversation there with Sam? A lot of energy coming off him. You see why they're successful. They really, really put together a great plan. And also, I think other thing noting in there is that sort of patience to make sure that they're really ready to launch a campaign, right? Um, and they knew that. And I think that's something that we have seen uh, quite a few companies struggle with. Um, you know, you got to do your work. got to do the grunt work. Um, you know, you don't just shoot out of the gate and have monster success. So, all right, guys. Hopefully, you guys all had a great week. I hope you guys have a great weekend. And I will talk to you all with a really cool uh, interview on Monday. We're going to be talking about an alarm clock uh, for kids um, that's coming up on Monday, like I said. And a uh, song we'll listen to is a song called Lucky. I've played it before. I don't need to get back into it. But... Um, here in Michigan, it's been dreary and rainy for the last uh, couple days here. And whenever that happens, the song just it means more to me than uh, when it did back in the day when I wrote it. So uh, check it out, and I'll talk to you all next week. You're lucky